14, where James tells us three things we need to remember when we're tempted. Things that, uh, and they're very useful. And if you haven't heard that sermon, if you go out to the uh, sermon, either our firstbaptistlifescleanness.com website and look back for the sermon, or go to sermonaudio.com slash rroland and you can see it there as well. But just to remember that James says there's some things we ought to do when we're tempted, because we're all going to be tempted. And the first thing he says is that we need to remember the penalty of sin. Uh, he says, when he says, lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so, uh, first of all, he says, conception, which requires two parents. For, for sin to occur, there's two parents. There is lust, which is a perverted desire. Remember, God gives us some desires, like we have a desire to sleep, we have a desire to eat, we have a desire when we're married to procreate. But the devil can pervert any of those desires. And, and, and if so, it could become slothfulness or it could become gluttony or it could become some form of immorality. And, and so uh, when there's a perverted desire, a desire that's out of balance, and when our will assents to do it. In other words, when our brain says, we're going to do that thing. And as, as Brother Stephen was talking about this morning in, in the Sunday school lesson, uh, you know, I, I think that this is right when a, when a person makes a decision uh, to receive Christ. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm going to ask Jesus Christ and my Savior they're, they're born again before they ever make it to the, to the, the front of the room to tell, talk to the pastor. Now, some people do come up and they have questions. Or uh, I've, always, I've always enjoyed talking to little kids when they come up. And I, one thing I've learned over the years is when little kids come up, I ask them why they want to be saved. And very often they'll tell you something like, well, because I want to go to heaven. Or, or I'm up here because Tommy's up here. Or something like that. And, and every now and then you'll ask a kid, though, and they'll say, well... I'm a sinner, I, I need God to forgive me. Well, then you know they've got it. You know, otherwise, you probably need to sit down, take a moment or two and find out, do you, do you know what you're doing? Do you understand uh, what it is? And I don't want to rush anybody into a fake confession. Uh, but uh, here we have the two parents of sin, which is the will. And the moment we decide that we want to embrace that sin... We've sinned. This is why Jesus said, You have heard it said by them of old time uh, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I send you, if you look after a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What's he saying? You look after a woman and, and you, your will has, there's that perverted desire that's a physical desire that's out of bounds a little bit or it's out of balance. And, and then with your will, you say, I'd really like to do that. And at that moment, God sees the sin. Because why? There's been a decision in our heart. doesn't matter if we don't ever follow through on it. What matters is that there was a lust in the will and they came together. And lust when it hath conceived bringeth forth sin. And then what does all sin do? When sin is finished it brings forth death. Now what kind of death? It doesn't mean that our heart's going to stop instantly, though there are some sins that do result in that. But it could be a death to your testimony. It could be a death to your marriage. It could be death to your relationships. It could be a death to your finances. It could be a death to your career. But some kind of damage occurs when we're sin. And so he says, sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now you think about David. David's staying home from war one day. His soldiers have gone off to war. He's walking along tops of his ca uh, the top of his uh, uh, palace. He happens to look down a little bit low, and he sees uh, one of his neighbors, uh, Uriah, the mighty man of, uh, he was a mighty man of valor, lived next door. Uh, he's off to war, but his wife Bathsheba is, is bathing, and, uh, and she didn't take proper precautions to cover up or anything. She may have thought on the roof of her house she was safe, but he looks, he lusts after and uh, at that moment he makes a decision that he's going to commit adultery and he does and we know what happens she gets pregnant uh, David has Uriah come home from the battlefront hoping that he'll go in and be with his wife and and then when when she's more obviously pregnant everybody will think oh well Uriah did that while he was home from the battlefield and uh, but Uriah was such a virtuous guy he's like I can't enjoy being home while my men are on the battlefield, so he wouldn't even sleep in the house, much less sleep with his wife. And so David's plan was foiled so to the point that David, to, to try to cover things up, he, he decided to have Uriah put at the front of the battle, have everybody else fall back, and Uriah is killed. And uh, 
then he tries to hide this for a while. It's now become obvious to everyone that something's wrong. The affair is beginning to be the stuff of chit-chat in the alleys and in the market. And, uh, but then uh, the child is born and the child gets very sick and David begs for the child's life, but the child dies. But David lets nearly a year go by from the time of his sin before he confesses anything. And he, he later writes uh, what happened to him in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, he writes how his, he felt like his bones ached. He, he, he was wrecked inside and how that there was this constant pressure. There was this constant sense of being separated from God. And he talks about when he finally did do the prayer, which is recorded for us in Psalm 51, that God did restore to him the joy of his salvation. So Psalm 32, by the way, if you want to put those psalms in chronological order, Psalm 51 happens before Psalm 32. He does the confession of Psalm 51, and then God restores the joy of his salvation in Psalm 32, and David writes a song about it. But here's the thing. If David had thought before he committed adultery, hey, I'm going to have to have one of my mighty men put to death. I'm, there's going to be a child that's going to be born. I'm going to beg for its life and it's going to die. Later, one of my sons is going to rape his half-sister. And then another son, Absalom, is going to go kill that son for raping his sister. And then Absalom is going to try to steal the kingdom from me. And I'm going to have to run out from the palace and I'm going to have to live in the wilderness while my own son is trying to take the kingdom from me. And all of these things are the consequences of sin. Had David been able to think, if I do this with her, all this is going to happen. Do you think he'd have touched her? Not with a 10-foot pole. But see, that's the thing about sin. Remember earlier in James, he said that we are tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed. That word drawn away means using a fishing lure. You put a lure in the water, fish sees it, and he bites on it thinking it's something good, but the fish doesn't see the hook. Same thing, uh, he says, when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Enticed means to bait an animal trap. Animal sees the bait, he doesn't see the trap. He doesn't see the jaws that are going to spring up on him and, and catch his leg. Or he doesn't see the, the box that's going to fall on top of him and, and trap him uh, when he eats the carrot that's tied to the string that's tied to the stick that's holding up the box. In other words, they don't see the penalty. But this is why it's always important for us when we're confronted with a temptation to understand there's a penalty that will be associated with it. Secondly, he says you need to remember the goodness of God. What is the goodness of God? Think about this again. What if David, well, we don't have to actually wonder because remember Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him with his sin, tells him the story about a sheep. I wish I had time to say why he used a sheep for the story. There's a reason for that. But he basically says, hey, there's this man. He only had one sheep. They treated it like a pet. His neighbor next door had hundreds of sheep, but they were out on the back 40. Somebody comes over for dinner, and rather than go and get one of his sheep off the back 40, he steals his neighbor's pet lamb, kills it, and cooks it. Uh, and offers it to his guests, and that lamb was like a member of the family to the kids. And David gets incensed, and there's a reason why, because there's something in David's past about sheep that makes him a little touchy on the subject. But David gets so mad, he's ready to have the guy uh, put to death, and before or after, he drags him through the streets. That's, that's how mad he gets. And then Nathan points his finger, and, I, you know, if I'm casting this in Hollywood, I'm looking for Nathan that's got a little bit of a crooked finger because it would be more dramatic. He points his finger at David and says, Thou art the man. And then Nathan says something very interesting. What's he say? He says, God has already given you Saul's kingdom. He gave you Saul's wives. He gave you Saul's treasures. And he says, you had everything, and if you had wanted more, you just had to ask. In other words, God has been so good to you, but you forgot that. Um, I will tell you, I don't travel a lot anymore thanks to the coronavirus, the travel Itineraries of many of us in the IT world have been shut down. We do our meetings over over WebEx, or or uh, we have things on the phone, or we do something. It's very, uh, you know, the world is just now starting to think about actually going places again, and maybe we'll get back to a new normal of some kind. 
Uh, but oftentimes when I'm in a hotel and I'm traveling, inevitably most hotels that you stay in, not all of them, thankfully, I have found a few brands that don't do this, but there's always the opportunity at m in many hotels to turn the TV on and there's what they call an adult channel. Well, it hardly caters to being a really a real adult, but let's just say that, that there's those channels that are available there. And, you know, sometimes the devil will say, you know what, you could turn that on, nobody will ever know. But first of all, I know the Bible says that God sees the same whether it's day or night, he sees completely. And it doesn't matter what I do, God knows every thought that's in my brain before I even have it. And he sees everything. And one of the things that always motivates me to not watch those channels or not do things in a, another city that I'd be ashamed of is because... I fear losing the blessing of God. I have a lot of blessings on my life. I have a wonderful wife who's, who's been faithful to me going on 41 years now. Uh, you know, God blessed us with eight kids. Uh, he's given me a good job. There's a lot of things for which I have to be thankful. I don't want to lose that. And so I want to stay where God can bless me. He's pouring out his blessings all the time, but I could do things to hinder my reception of those blessings. So he says, remember the goodness of God. And then he says, uh, of his own will beget he us that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, and what he's saying is, we're God's children. Another reason not to sin is to remember who our father is, to remember who's, who's our king. We're the child of a king. Why would you want to go serve? If you're, the, if you're the prince in a country, why would you make yourself slave to another king in another country? And in the same way, if God is our father, why should we want to serve the devil? If, if he's my father, I'd, I want to honor him. You know, I hope that your kids one day will have a good enough relationship with you that their chief concern will be not disappointing you, not wanting to, to lose having a relationship with you. That's, that's what should happen. So we're, we're, these are the three things he tells us, but in today's passage... We're going to go on to number four. There's a fourth thing to do to overcome temptation, and that is we need to read and study and ruminate and meditate on God's Word. We need to stay in it. And, and spiritual growth requires some things. It requires that we uh, receive the Word, that we refuse to be angry, that we remove the filth from our lives, that we respond to the Word, and that we resign to what the Word has to tell us. So let's look at some of those things. So here's the passage. Um, let me ask you just to stand and honor God's Word if you're able to, just for this quick verse. James 1, uh, and I was going to try to cover the whole rest of the chapter. I said, no, nope, we'll stick to these four verses here, uh, or three, three verses. Understand, my dear brothers, every person must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all moral uncleanness and wicked excess, or as the King James says, the superfluity of naughtiness. I always thought those were kind of cool words. Welcome with humility the implanted message which is able to save your souls. Which is able to save your souls. All right, thank you. You may be seated. So let's go through what he's saying to do. He says, first of all, we need to receive the word. Look at how he starts this. He says, understand this, my dear brothers. He is, these are people that he is concerned about. Now he's writing to an a audience of Jewish Christians. Uh, many of them maybe had come out of the church of Jerusalem, but this was one of those general epistle letters that went out to Jewish Christians everywhere. And he says, you're my dear brothers. I care about you. And James has a highly pastoral tone. And he is, this is probably, in my opinion, one of the more practical books of, of the New Testament. And, and he, he makes it clear that what is about to follow is really important. He says, you need to, you need to look at this. You need to behold this. He, he says, understand this. Or some versions say, behold this or know this. It's the, the Greek word, iste, which he's, he's trying to get their attention and he says, you need to focus on what I'm about to tell you. And then he gives them three instructions. He says, first of all, be quick to listen. Secondly, be slow to speak. And thirdly, be slow to anger. Now, it should be apparent to us that we ought to listen more than we talk because God gave us two ears and one mouth. 
Okay, so we ought to listen at least twice as much as we talk. Uh, you learn a lot more by listening than you do by talking. Uh, and, and as someone has said one time, uh, it's better that someone imagine that you're an idiot than for you to open your mouth and convince them of that fact. Uh, so, you know, we need to be quick to hear, especially when it comes to God's Word. We need to be slow to speak. Now, I think James is thinking more than just in daily life we need to listen more than we talk. I think he's thinking about the fact that there were a lot of people who wanted to get up and teach others how they ought to live without having their own act together first. The reason I say that is because later in James he's going to say, My brethren, strive not to be many masters, knowing that such shall receive the greater condemnation or the greater judgment. In other words, there was a, a tendency for a lot of people, they, they wanted people to look up on them, and they wanted people to respect them, and so they, they would get up and they would pontificate on their own opinions and hopefully that somebody come along and pat them on the back and tell them how, how good they were. Uh, last time I, I heard someone pontificate on their opinion, I actually went and confronted them later. I said, do you realize that you didn't read a single verse of Scripture? What are you doing in a pulpit without reading God's Word? They need to be confronted. Uh, we need to preach from the Word, and that's what it's about. It's not about giving the philosophies. It's not about reading you know, materials or impressing people how intelligent you are. It's, do, do they... Have they heard you speak from the Word of God? That's what's real, truly important. And so uh, he, he, he says this. He says, you know, we need to be quick to hear from God. And then we need, to, we need to hold it inside. And we need to let it change our lives. We need to let it affect us before we speak things about God. And make sure that what we're saying really comes from the Lord. Be quick to hear, but slow to speak. And along with it. He says, be slow to wrath. Now, some of you have seen if you go down the hall shortly before you get to the fellowship hall, if you look to the right and see my office door back there, it says, anger is one letter short of danger. All you've got to do is put a D in front of anger, and you've got the word danger. Uh, and isn't it interesting that the people who probably spend time in God's Word, receiving God's Word, listening to God's Word, meditating God's Word, pondering what God's Word has to say, I'm guessing these are people who are less likely to get angry quickly. But people who don't have the patience to spend time in God's Word and listen to God and hear from God, they're probably the people who are more likely to get angry quickly. Now, a lot of us love to justify our anger. We'd love to say, oh, well, that was righteous anger. Well, people say that haven't read their Bibles because there is no such thing as righteous anger. Uh, the fact is, did you notice how this, the Lexham English Bible uh, put it here? I like this. He says, for human anger, that's a very good way of saying it, for human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Uh, in King James it says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. There's only one person who can be angry without sinning. That's God. When Jesus made a, a whip and he drove people out of the temple, he fulfilled a prophecy that he would be jealous for his own house and he was completely righteous in doing so. He had no selfish motivation. He wasn't angry because something was stepping on his toes personally. He had a zeal for the righteousness of God. But the fact is, even if we say that we're angry about something, we can't do it without sinning. The fact is, the Bible says that... Uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And then he says, and just as Christ has loved you, you be kind and tenderhearted toward one another, even as Christ for, or for God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We, it's, we can't be righteous. We're, there's something in our human spirit that when we're angry... We can't do it in a righteous way because there's always going to be something of our own selfishness wrapped up in it. And, and so we need to be slow to be angry. I think what, the way we need to use anger is, is this, is that when we sense ourselves becoming angry, uh, it should be like a warning flag to us. Uh, if I walked up later today, snuck up behind you because I can walk without making a lot of noise in these shoes, and if I snuck up behind you and you're in the middle of a conversation and all suddenly I yell loudly in one ear. And I, first of all, it's going to scare you. It's going to set you back a bit. Uh, but you might for a moment have a feeling 
that you're going to respond <laughs> to that interruption in a certain way. And there's different things, you know. Uh, years ago, when Donald was courting uh, Melody, uh, they were at our house, and we were having some air conditioning issues, and and I was uh, I just I decided to play a trick on my soon-to-be son-in-law, and uh, I just said, "Now, where are you? Where are you talking about?" And so he points up like this, and when he did, I, I goosed him right under the rib cage. And it was a good thing I was fast on my feet because he had an instantaneous reaction to me grabbing him on the rib cage. He turned around and was coming like this before he even realized he's about to hit the guy whose daughter he was going to marry. And, and uh, so I got a good laugh of it, but I was really glad I ducked when I did. Now, he wasn't mad. It was just one of those things that there's an instantaneous knee-jerk reaction to. A lot of things in life you have instantaneous knee-jerk reactions to. Uh, but when we feel ourselves starting to get angry about something, it should be a warning sign to us that there's a right in our life that we haven't surrendered to God. There's an area where we're not being humble about something. There's, uh, you know, now we can be grieved about something that, that damages the kingdom or that hurts someone that we love. And I do think there's a sense at which God gives a man a protective instinct over his wife in particular and his family in general. Uh, and because, you know, God says that he's a jealous God. It means he protects his relationship. He doesn't want anything interfering. And I guarantee you, if somebody's to try to come and, and uh, damage the intimacy that my wife and I share, I'm going to be highly protective uh, of that thing. But the, the thing is, he says, the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. He doesn't say except when. It just says the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. And how much anger are we supposed to get rid of? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. The, the point is, is that anger shows that we need to yield some things to God that we haven't yield, uh, yielded, so we need to refuse to give in to anger. Now, the one who listens, by the way, is less likely to give in to anger than the one who wants to speak all the time. Now, he says this, too, and this kind of goes right along the heels of anger. He says, get rid of the moral filth in your life. Get rid of the superfluity of naughtiness in, in your life. Uh, he says, it's essential, verse 21, to put away, remove all moral filth. And this is a Greek word, riparian. Uh, it's used only here in the New Testament. You see it, uh, the uh, adjective in chapter 2 and verse 2 uh, means shabby. He says, get rid of the shabby uh, unworthy, evil stuff in your life. Because there's some stuff that if we allow it in our life often enough and in a sufficient quantity enough, it affects our own morals. If you, um, if you were just a really outstanding Christian when you graduated high school and maybe you'd been taught at home, uh, but then you go get your first secular job and then people around you start using language you didn't hear at home, it's easier for that vocabulary to creep into your, your life. It's easier for vocabulary uh, in, uh, on TV to start creeping into your own vocabulary. It's easier for those thoughts and concepts to start creeping in. And so he says, get rid of these worldly impulse uh, or uh, things that, that come in and affect our flesh. So he says, wherefore, uh, lay apart all filthiness. And I love that superfluity of naughtiness. In other words, this is, these are things that don't add a superfluity is things that are in excess and abundance, but they don't add value. And so superfluity of naughtiness is, is things that God is not pleased with, and they add no value whatsoever to our own life. Now, I want you to notice, though, that he gives us a result. Uh, he, says, he says, receive with meekness the engrafted or implanted work. Now, I made a big deal a lot of years about this being... Uh, about grafting, but planting is just as valid here uh, of a translation from the Greek. Here's the deal. You can read the Bible without it affecting you. How many of you have ever done that? I certainly have. You read the Bible because you know you're supposed to, or you listen to the Bible while you're getting dressed in the morning, which I frequently do, and yet later maybe not one thing affected you or did you ponder on it. It was just kind of a, a rote and it's better to do that than not do anything because the Spirit can still, inside you can still hear something from the Word of God. But what he says, when he says receive with meekness, that means yielding your rights. It means that you, you're not challenging God's Word. You're not saying, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't care what God thinks. I'm not doing that. 
uh, receive with meekness, that is yielding up your rights to the Lord, the engrafted or the implanted work. See, you can go out and throw seed out on the ground, and, the, and what did Jesus say about seed that fell on the hard ground? Well, the birds come and eat it, and they take it away, and it has no effect. Implanted means that somebody put the seed into the ground so that it would come up and it would bear fruit. And the implanted word means that you've done something with the word of God so that it bear fruit. For example, today, what are you doing with this sermon? Is there any way that this sermon could benefit your life if you walk out and get in your car and 30 minutes later can't recall anything that was said? Probably not. You went through the motions. You were a, a good pew-warming Christian, but that just puts you through the motions. The way we benefit from what we're taught in church is to say, you know, that, that particular truth affected me. I need to memorize that verse of Scripture. Or I need to write that point down. Or, you know, my wife and I need to sit down tonight and talk about how do we get this thing integrated into our lives so that we can benefit from it. What, how, does, how should this change my routine? In other words, we do something with it. See, if you think that you're, and a lot of people will tell you, and they're very kind, very polite, uh, especially here in Texas, you know, uh, we're the friendly state. But you, you people will be going out the door and they'll say, you know, I was really blessed by your message. But if you really read the rest of the book of James, you'll find out you're not blessed by hearing the word, you're blessed by doing the word. He's going to make a whole big point of that in chapter 2. We're not blessed by hearing. We're blessed by doing, putting it into practice. So the implanted word is that when we, we do something that marks, uh, puts a mark on our lives, that it, it deeply sets in our lives, it fixes a new behavior in, in our lives, it's to be ingrown or inborn. It's to be rooted in the soil. Now the other example that is still a valid example is the idea of crafting. I think grafting is a cool thing. Uh, I've watched people do it before. But for example, you could have an, an apple tree, and it could be just be kind of a wild apple tree. But you could go down and you could go to a nursery. You could cut a branch off of a Granny Smith apple tree. You make a little point on it like it's a spear, and on the other end you cut a little V-notch into the wild apple tree. You fit the spear point into that little notch, and then you wrap it with some, some landscape tape for such purposes. And what happens is the, the Granny Smith part of the tree draws the sap from the wild apple tree, and guess what you get? You get Granny Smith apples. But then you could go get... Uh, Red Delicious or Roman Beauty or some other kind of apple branch, you could graft that into a different part of the tree, and then that part of the tree would make a different kind of apple. It's a phenomenal thing to do. So if you wanted to, you could have eight different kinds of apples growing off of one tree. And there are people who do this kind of thing just for greens. You can do the same thing with pear trees and a whole lot of other trees. What happens, and, and, and the Bible even makes a whole lesson on grafting in Romans chapter 10, which is kind of an awful example there because there you graft the wild branch into the cultivated branch because it makes the cultivated part of the tree more fruitful because the wild branch draws the sap up. The olive trees are kind of opposite other trees. And Paul uses it to explain the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the kingdom, which we're not going to get into today. But here's the thing. If to engraft the word, how do you really make the word part of your life? Well, first of all, you memorize it. I, I enjoy hearing Brother Stephen teach because I can tell him how much of God's word's hidden in his heart that he's able to quote. And, and our pastor, uh, it's getting a little harder for him as he gets a little older, but he still is one of the best at being able to quote scripture from his heart. It's been a part of his life. He's been preaching it for, you know, six and a half decades. Um, in, I, I when we memorize on God's Word, and then not just memorize it, but we think on it. This word meditate, uh, a better translation is actually ruminate. When I was at Texas A&M University, uh, I was there the, uh, the year that the big fire in the library happened and burned both books. Uh, and they weren't even colored in yet, so it was a real tragedy. Uh, but anyway, at Texas A&M University when I was there, we had a, you could go out to an agricultural uh, station. Uh, it was a little bit off campus and they had cattle out there. Uh, Texas was one of two what they call land-grant colleges in the state, uh, the other being uh, the University of Texas, which we won't mention anymore. But uh, they, they had land and they had cattle. And uh, when I ate in the student dorms back in 1979, 
uh, we got uh, T-bone steak every Wednesday and from our own cattle. It was pretty awesome. Uh, next semester, I decided I cooked for myself and saved the, the money uh, of paying uh, to eat at the dorm. Uh, that goes down in my all-time list of stupidest decisions ever because there, that semester I ate uh, pork chops, macaroni and cheese, and peanut butter. And after Judy and I got married, I wouldn't let her serve me macaroni and cheese for the first 20 years of our marriage just because I ate so much of it in college. Uh, I will eat it now, but it took me at least two decades to get over it. Uh, it's much better eating on campus. But the, the thing is you could go out and you could see this cow, and they had put these these portholes in the cow's side, they're about this big around, and they, you could see through them because when a cow eats, it's, they, their stomach has four different chambers, but uh, each of those four chambers is kind of divided in two halves, so it's almost like having eight stomachs. But you'd see the cow chew up the grass, and it would go down this first stomach, and it would sit there for a long time, and then later, this thing would come back up, which I don't ever want happening to me, but this thing comes back up. It's kind of this ball of wet grass, and then all of a sudden you see without the cow's just standing around, its head not down or anything, all of a sudden the cow just starts chewing again. Well, it's chewing on what it has chewed before. It chews a little more, it goes down, goes to a different stomach this time. More processing occurs, and then it comes back up, and every time it's changed a little bit, but you can see it migrating from one compartment of the stomach to the other, but the one thing that happened between every stage was more chewing. And it, they chew it until it becomes a part of themselves or becomes those nice things that they leave in the pasture that muddy up your boots. Now, by the way, in West Texas, uh, I lived outside of Lubbock, Texas for a while, you don't you don't throw away that stuff they leave in the pasture. You wait for a special day at school every year, Western Day, all the kids wear jeans and, and cowboy boots to school, and we have these contests, and one of them was who could throw a cow patty the furthest. And you will be happy to know that I won the award for being able to sling bull further than anyone else, and, uh, and I still can. Uh, but at any rate, it's... Uh, they go from stomach to stomach to stomach till it becomes a part of it. That's what the Word of God's supposed to do. We're supposed to be affected by a verse and think about it, meditate on it, ruminate on it, chew on it until it becomes a part of us. And then it's kind of like that Granny Smith branch off of the apple tree. It bears that fruit. If I've meditated on a verse to be more loving, then the outcome should be that I'm more loving. If I meditated on a verse of how not to get angry quickly, I should have more control over my temper. If I've meditated on verses about the dangers of lusting after the opposite sex, I should have more control over my eyes. Maybe I, I, I meditate on verses on financial wisdom, then I would be better at, at tithing and be better at organizing my spending priorities by God's ways rather than my own. See, the thing is, you get what you plant. Jesus said sometimes you get fivefold, sometimes tenfold, sometimes a hundredfold, but whatever you plant, you get that. You don't plant wheat and get corn, you get more wheat. You get whatever you plant. And, and same thing with grafting. Whatever you graft in is what you're going to get. So the word needs to be implanted or grafted into our lives in a such a way that it bears fruit. And here, here's the trick. For this word to make a difference, it has to show up in our lives. See, the word's not meant to be philosophized about or talked about or lectured about. It's meant to be lived out in our lives has to be practical and it's easy for me to get caught up into the the outlining and the lecturing but not let it take hold of my my will and that's what's important that we need to do so the word of god to really change us we have to ruminate on us till it's a part of us and here's the effect and by the way i want to show you this and I, I, you may not be able to see that little bit of greek up there it's a little too too um small for you, but I did post it up here because right up here, the actual translation, I'll do this again, red dot, here we go. Right here it says, this is the Greek up here, and it says, which is able to save your souls. There's the Greek word suke right there. It's the word we get psychology from, the word we get psyche from. It's the word from we get when we say we're going to psych someone out. It's to affect their mind, will, 
and emotions. Now, interestingly enough, the New International Version of the Bible omits this. Uh, I, this is one of the reasons I don't use that particular version of the Bible because they take out words. The people that translated NIV believe that we were bipartite, which means that we're physical and we, we, we have a body and we have a spirit. They didn't acknowledge the existence of the soul. We were two parts. Whereas most conservative Christian scholars are tripartite, meaning that just as God is a trinity and we're created in the image of a, a triune God, that we are in three parts, that there is a spirit, soul, and body. In 1 John, he says, I pray that your whole spirit, soul, and body are well. He mentions all three in one verse. This happens, by the way, in a number of verses in Scripture that mentions all three. But sometimes the NIV, they just choose not to, choose to, to do the whole soul thing. I don't know why. But, you know, it makes a big difference because if you read this in NIV, it just says that you should receive with meekness the implanted word that will save you. Well, what's that mean? Does that mean if I memorize a verse of Scripture, I get to go to heaven? Because save you could mean a lot, right? What does it mean when it says specifically that it saves your souls? Now, in the New Testament, for every one time that the Scripture mentions your body, it mentions your soul, that is your mind, will, and emotions, three times, and it mentions your spirit six times. So when I have done marriage counseling over the last four decades, I usually explain to people, here's something you need to understand. You're about 10% physical, you're about 30% psychological, and you're 60% spiritual. The problem with most marriages is they are physically attracted to one another, that's 10%, and maybe they have similar goals in life and they have the same plans, so they seem to be psychologically compatible, so that's 30%, but they don't have anything going spiritually, so they're starting marriage with only 40% of what a real marriage ought to be. And you know, this is why 52 to 54% of all first-time marriages, even among Christians, fail, because they don't have that. My dad... Um, was my, my stepmother and dad were married well over 25 years, I think. I'd have to go look at the date now. But my dad had a stroke, and it left him totally paralyzed. And he had the stroke shortly before Judy met him for the first time. He loved Judy, but he couldn't really express it very well. He could say, I love you, if he really struggled to, but my dad lost his ability to speak. Dad was a highly intelligent man, but he lost his ability to communicate deep thoughts. Uh, he could motion. Uh, he, he, if you ever drove my dad anywhere, he would still give you directions. It drove him crazy to not be behind the wheel. And he, he'd, ah, he'd make noise and he'd point and want you to turn. And if you didn't go that way because you knew a better way, it just totally tripped him out. Uh, but imagine being married and your partner loses their ability to speak to you, loses their ability to be physically intimate with you, loses their ability to share deep thoughts with you. What's left? Well, what was left between my dad and my beloved stepmother, who I called mom, and she's with the Lord now, is that they both loved Jesus. They were spiritually together. So what happens is during the course of their marriage, they lost 40% of their relationship, but they still had more than half of a marriage because they loved Jesus together. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. And you know, the best of all conditions is when you're physically attracted to one another and you have common goals in life, but you both love Jesus. Then you got the whole package. You're going to survive. And believe me, it's tough even with 100% to survive in today's time, but you'll do it. But I just want to point that out. I'm not trying to, to criticize the NIV. I'm just saying be careful when you pick a Bible that you pick one that doesn't leave words out uh, of, of Scripture. Now, let's talk about the soul because this is where our battles are. It's the, the battleground for our soul. And one writer has written, the greatest battles of life are fought out daily in the silent chambers of the soul. And that's very true. So let, let's take a look at this training. This diagram uh, kind of puts it, now it's kind of interesting, the diagram I think is probably the way I would have drawn it, even though the soul, the spirit is maybe 60% of our being. But the thing is here, it's at the core of our being. Around it you have the soul, the suke, and there's three things that happen in the suke. It's where we think, where we feel, and where we decide. Or put another way, it's our mind, will, and emotions. Uh, it's our feeler, our thinker, and our decision maker. And then of course, it's encapsulated in an earth suit called the body. 
And just like astronauts wear spacesuits while they're in space, while we're here, we wear an earth suit. But there is coming a day, my friends, when I'm going to eject. And the body I get then will be a glorified body. It will not have the pain from two back surgeries and a car wreck and a horse riding accident that makes me want to get up and take codeine every morning. It's not going to have any of those problems. They're no mean free of aches and pains. I'm looking forward to that day. But what do these different things do? Well, our spirit is the part of us that listens to God. But our body hears what the world is saying. It hears the news. It hears the stuff on the TV. It's, uh, it is affected by the sights of this world. You remember the, first, uh, the very first sin was Eve. It says Eve saw the fruit and it looked good to her eyes. A lot of sin enters through our eyes. It's the temptations that we see. It's the, it's the physical pleasures. It's what the body calls the flesh or the sarcos in Greek. It's this, this part of us that is prone to uh, a lack of control very often. And in between these two things sits the soul. And the soul takes input from what's on either side of it. It takes input from if you've been listening to God's Word, reading God's Word, hearing God's Word taught, you get input from God, but you also are going to hear some stuff from uh, the world today. You're going to hear some stuff from the flesh today. And your soul is sitting here in the middle supposing to make good decisions. And if your, your spirit is strong enough, your, your will will go to making wise decisions. It will go to making decisions to honor God. But if your flesh is stronger than your spirit, you'll do some stupid stuff. And as Dave Ramsey says, when you do stupid, you reap desperate. And, and that's what happens to us when we make wrong decisions. So the war for all our thoughts and our feelings and our, our decisions are happening in the soul. That's our battleground. So what does meditating on the Word of God or listening to sermons and taking notes and finding a way to put God's Word into practice, what's that have to do with our soul? Well, first of all, if, if we understand that the soul is taking input from the spirit and input from the flesh, when we don't read God's word, when we're not memorizing God's word, we're not ruminating God's word, we're not pondering it, we're not thinking over it because we allow distractions in our life, what is happening to us? We are depriving ourselves of one set of input. Now, I'm sure Corbin knows this and anybody else that's ever worked with computers has probably heard this saying too, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. You put bad code in, you get bad results out. Well, listen, if all I put into my life is the world's input, then what am I going to get out of my life? Worldliness. Uh, a lack of fulfillment, a lack of purpose. I need to put God's word in my life so that I'll have a meaningful life in some way and so that I'll make wise decisions. Now, by the way, we can also, so the natural tendency, by the way, is to turn off God's work. That's our natural tendency. That's what our flesh wants us to do. Uh, by the way, if you look in Scripture, you'll see that there's a pattern in Scripture that each generation becomes less godly than the generation before it. Now, that's the pattern, but there are exceptions. So, for example, Paul writing to Timothy tells him that the, what is in him is because Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother, read the scriptures to Timothy while he was still a baby. And he uses the Greek word brephos, which means an infant, possibly an infant in the womb, certainly an infant out of the womb. In other words, before he was even a child that could process normal human speech, they're reading God's word to him. Well, that tells me that as a young child, they continued his training. He went from a brephos to a technos and ultimately a weos in Greek. But they were reading the word to him. They were training him. And, and as a result, Timothy became more godly than his father who was not a believer. So you can go the other way with it. But the tendency is the next generation is probably going to look at our compromises and they're going to be less godly and they're going to take Christianity more casually and not nearly as seriously maybe as we did. This is why we have to change. Now, here's the thing we can do though. We can reverse some of this process by instead of depriving ourselves of the world, let's deprive ourselves of the world. So the Bible encourages a very non-Baptist word, by the way, it's fasting. We believe in adding an E to that word and making it feasting, and that's cool too. But it's fasting. Now, why is fasting such a big deal? It's not meant to be, first of all, don't fast to impress God because I got news for you. There is nothing you can do that will impress God. Nothing I do impresses God. 
He's not impressed with me at all. He's only impressed with what his son Jesus did for me. Only thing that impresses God. But when I fast, what am I doing? I'm turning down the input from my flesh. I'm ignoring those things saying that I really want a cheese enchilada right now. Okay. I am turning down the impulses as I turn down. The interesting thing, by the way, is when you get control in one area of your life, it spills over into other areas. Uh, you will notice, for example, that a man that gets his finances under control probably keeps his car cleaner. Uh, and I've heard people comment on this before. Or you start managing your, uh, your diet better and keeping your weight under control, that you're probably going to be better in your spending habits. The self-control just spills over. When I turn down the physical inputs of my life by not eating, and I give that time instead to prayer, and Isaiah 58 says, don't fast just to impress people the ritual or impress God. Do it so that you can give to the poor and so you can spend more time in the Word. And he says, and if you do that, your health will spring forth speedily and you'll prosper. In other words, you'll make better decisions and better decisions have better outcomes. So what do you do here? You, you turn down the physical flesh. Suddenly, lust becomes less of a problem than it is normally. Suddenly, it's easier to turn off those tendency to make bad decisions. So fasting says, I'm going to turn down the volume on the world so I can hear God better. I know one businessman here in Dallas uh, that at the beginning of each year, he uh, takes a, uh, a stack of yellow legal pads. Uh, he, he's a real estate developer, but he takes these yellow legal pads, he takes his Bible, and he leaves for, uh, it, used to, it used to be a month. I don't know if he's still doing a whole month, but he might be doing a couple of weeks. And he goes to a log cabin where there's no TV. <laughs> uh, there's uh, no real communications that happens except he is able to call home and check on his family. And what he does is he spends time there reading God's word, but he fasts for that entire period of time while he's doing it. And when he comes back, he has goals that he believes God wants him to accomplish in the coming year. And he's a very successful uh, businessman as a result. So there's a benefit to turning down the world so we can hear God better. Now... I don't know. You know, there are physical benefits to fasting as well. But I think we need to consider whether we want the spiritual benefits of this. Now, a soul, this is just a diagram I think is really important. I've, I've drawn this diagram a few hundred times over the last 40 years explaining stuff. Let me just tell you, out of all the people I've counseled over the last four decades, I would say 90% of people have a problem with bitterness. Something got in their lives that made them ticked off and somebody hurt them in some way or they think somebody hurt them in some way and it's bothered them ever since. Now what I want you to look at is that diagram. Imagine for a minute that your soul is like a plot of ground and it's divided up into acres and the, Paul tells us in Ephesians and he warns us not to let, uh, not to yield ground to the devil. He tells us about being angry, for example, and the King James says, be angry and sin not. If you actually read the Greek, it says, while you're in the process of becoming angry, don't sin by giving into the anger. But he says, you need to let, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't go to bed mad. Because if you go to bed mad, you wake up bitter. Okay? You need to deal with problems before you go to bed at night. Now, what happens, though, is we surrender ground to the devil. Now, at first... Uh, it may be as simple as somebody squatting on your land. I saw a, a video this last week. A guy had a storage shed, and he had uh, some of his, his brother was a photographer. He had some beautiful pictures. He was setting up uh, a, an exhibit to feature his brother works photography, and he went to the storage shed to get his uh, brother's photographs out and discovered that a man and, and a woman were living in his shed. And they refused to get out. And so for months, he'd been going by there trying to get them out. Uh, police had gone out a time or two, and I guess didn't really take any action. So here he has someone squatting in his shed. They had put in a, a, a they, they had made up a bed, and they had a headboard. Maybe it was something that was already in there, and they had their stuff set up. And they had a hot plate. They had, there's not supposed to be any electricity in the shed, but they had strung together some electric cords to bring electricity in there to run a hot plate and run a light bulb so that they could. And basically, they had set up their deal there. And the man was angry when he was told to leave a place that wasn't even his own. 
Finally, this guy calls a TV station. They get out there with the TV cameras, and the TV station tries to talk to him, and they wouldn't leave and calls him all kinds of names. When the TV station gets the police out there, the police decide to take more action because, you know, the camera's on them. They're going to be a little more diligent. And they got the people out, and this is the first time in like five or six months the guy's been able to get into his own storage shed, which he's been paying for on a monthly basis. The idea that somebody could squat in something that long seems unreal, and yet when we have a hurt and we don't forgive people, we're letting the devil set up camp in our souls. And, and what happens is people get bitter at shows in their lives. I went and was visiting someone in uh, southeast, no, southwest Dallas a number of years ago, and I took one of my sons with me, and when we left, talking to this lady. I said, son, what was wrong with that lady? And he said, dad, she was bitter. Oh, man, I'm such a bitter, negative person. She had a nasty comment about anybody whose name you mentioned. She had something bad to say about them. Just one of the most bitter people I've ever met. Well, what did Jesus say would happen when we let the devil set up ground? The devil is never content with us, and Jesus said he would send out tormentors. That was the word that he used. He would send out tormentors. So let me tell you what happens uh, because I've worked in a mental hospital for, oh, I guess, four years. Uh, I've done a lot of counseling, and I can tell you I've seen this again. You see someone, and they have a problem with something weird, bulimia, for example. Counsel with a young woman that had bulimia or anorexia. I've met those people, too. Or insomnia, people who just can't go to sleep, not because of pain, but just because it seems like they can't turn down their mind long enough to relax because they have some built-up animosity in their souls, or outbursts of anger that become uncontrollable. Where's all that come from? These are the tormentors that the devil's sending out. What he's trying to do is take more and more of your soul. And what typically happens is when the problems get bad enough, these people, either at the behest of their friends or by some realization of their own, they said, I need help. And so they go see a psychologist or a soul doctor. Problem is the psychologist tries to tell them, how to deal with the anger or tries to tell them how, what they can do to help them go to sleep at night and get a better night's rest or gives them some coping technique like counting to 10 before they blast off in anger. But the psychologist doesn't solve the problem, which is there's a castle there that the devil has set up. It's become what the Bible calls a stronghold, First, Second Corinthians chapter 10. He says we have to, by the power of God, we need to cast down every imagination and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And he refers to these as strongholds. A stronghold is where the devil has set up a lie in our souls that contradicts the word of God. And, and then we send out these tormentors, and, and Jesus, Paul told the Ephesians, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our real problems. We wrestle against uh, principalities and powers and in high places. He's saying this is a spiritual warfare, and, and we let these invaders get in our soul, and we surrender ground to them. Uh, and then what's the objective if the enemy's conquered some of your ground? You've got to take the ground back. Well, how do you go about doing that? Well... First of all, let's find out what are the three kinds of strongholds that come to most people. I think you could probably sum up almost every stronghold that exists in the souls of man in these three areas in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what's the lust of the flesh? That's sexual immorality. One of the most overwhelming sins that men cannot free themselves from, and I'm not saying women don't have a problem with it too, but I think it's largely a male problem, is pornography. Uh, I was at a conference in Indianapolis many years ago and was speaking to about 400 dads. And right before I got up to speak, a speaker got up and talked in pornography. So many men became convicted that, uh, that I think like 46 different men came up to give their testimony of their own slavery to pornography. And the reason they did it, because you think, why would I want to ever get up and talk about that, is when you bring it out in the open, it, the devil doesn't have power. Uh, the Bible says, he who confesses his sin has mercy. Uh, confesses and forsakes. That means you take it out from hiding and then you let go of it. But he says, but if you hold on to your sin, you have destruction. And see, a lot of people hold on to it because pornography is kind of the sin they can hide away from everybody. 
But they, you need to get rid of it. So that's the lust of the flesh. Then the lust of the eyes. That's greed. It's always being covetous, always wanting more than you have. And one of the most addictive sins in the United States next to pornography is gambling. People gamble. It's getting a lot for a little. Uh, and that's, that's sad. And then the pride of life. And the pride of life is believing that life owed you better than what you got. Somebody should have treated you better than they did. Uh, somebody should have... Uh, circumstances should have been better. It's, it's easy to get bitter when life's hard on you. Um, and I, I struggle with this one uh, because when you're in pain all the time, you sometimes think, why me? You know, why hadn't God freed me from all my pain? Um, and the pain I got was really due to the stupidity of a young woman driving while she was texting uh, and hitting me from behind at 35 miles an hour. And it's hard for me to this day to kind of wrap my brain around that thought. But these are the strongholds. And for example, here's what he says in 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those things build strongholds. So what do we do? First of all, we have to confess our strongholds. If we're bitter to somebody, we need to realize that's a sin. Why is bitterness a sin? Because God told us to forgive people, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. I'm not supposed to be mad at somebody. I'm not supposed to hold a grudge. It is not spiritual to hold a grudge even against an unbeliever or even against a backslidden Christian. There's nothing spiritual about holding a grudge. Uh, to be like Christ, we need to forgive those who aren't worthy of forgiveness. We need to confess that sin. So look what he says in Hebrews 12. And again, this one's particular to bitterness because it's what I counsel the most. He says, look diligent lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. See, if I get bitter, I start uh, venting my anger on others and being unkind to others. And guess what? They get angry and then they get bitter and then many are defiled. That's why it's such a deadly sin. And then ask God to take back the surrendered ground. Y'all, y'all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, you know, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then it says this, he restoreth my soul. No psychologist will ever restore you to a right soul. No psychologist will ever give you the secret to have right thoughts, right feelings, and right actions, but meditating on God's word and asking God to take back the ground you surrendered to Satan, he can put you back on the right path. I've seen people go to counselors for years and spend tens of thousands of dollars, and then you help them realize they're bitter against something, and they confess that, and it's like the Lord changed their life overnight. Then you need to ask God to, you need to tear down those strongholds. Why? Why do people get bitter? Because they believe that life owed them better than what they got. Let's be honest for just a minute. Let me help you tear down that stronghold. What do you and I deserve? What we deserve is an eternity in the lake of fire. Because of our sin and because we're not righteous and we can't impress God. And there's no amount of rituals, no amount of, of sacraments you can do in some kind of church that will ever save you. So guess what? If I got anything better than the lake of fire, I'm good. And guess what? If you want to run up to my face and say, well, you're a lying, thieving adulterer. Yeah, I can remember as a kid stealing something from a grocery store. Check on the thief. Uh, yeah, I've told some big ones before. So check on the liar. Adulterer, yes, I, I've looked at women in the wrong way in my past. So, yeah, I'm an adulterer according to Jesus Christ. So, if you want to call me a lying, thieving adulterer, I don't need to get mad at you. You're just stating the truth. Guess what? You can criticize me as much as you want, and you're probably going to be right. Now, it's not who I am in Christ, but I don't need to get angry about it. So, tear down the strongholds. The truth is, you don't deserve better. Whatever you've got is better than what you deserve. This is why Dave Ramsey, what's he always answer? And somebody says, how are you? He always says, better than I deserve. Because that's an accurate answer for a Christian. And number four, you need to demonstrate right action. So if you're bitter towards someone, you need to forgive your offender. Not only forgive your offender, but to do good. I never will forget a little girl in Palestine, Texas, about this high little blonde girl, blue eyes, freckles. And I asked her... One day I was talking to her. I think she's five years old, uh, but out of the mouth of babes, right? I, I said, what, is, what do you think forgiveness is? She says, that's the smell flowers make when you step on them. 
I thought, wow, that's good. (laughs) We're stepped on and yet we give off a right fragrance. But we can ask God to take back the ground of our soul. So here's the big takeaway, and this is the last slide. The point I want you to get is that none of this stuff is going to accidentally happen to you. It's not going to just, you're not going to become a victorious Christian just because you came to church. Uh, You're not going to overcome temptations just because you happen to be here. That's good. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here. But here's the deal. We have to be intentional. You have to be intentional about meditating on God's Word. You will not meditate on God's Word by accident. You have to hear it. You have to put it in your mind. You have to chew on it. That's intentional. You have to be intentional when you've given up ground to the Satan and you're starting to get those tormentors in your life and you want your life to get back on a kill where you can be used of the Lord, you need to be intentional about asking God to take back the ground you've surrendered to the devil. You have to be intentional to fast. Now, there's times that I fast unintentionally because nobody brings me any food, you know, and if that happens long enough, I will unfast intentionally by going to Taco Bell, okay? But, you know, but to fast is an intentional thing. If I'm going to pray about a decision, I need to fast and pray while doing that. None of these things happen automatically. So my encouragement to you is to become intentional at the fourth thing that we really need to do to conquer temptation and sin in our lives. Not only do we need to remember the consequence of sin and remember the goodness of God and remember whose kingdom we're a part of and the divine nature that's in us and that everywhere I go as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in me. So if I'm sinning while I'm a Christian, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, my dad had a nasty habit. He smoked. Uh... I didn't like that. Over the years, I've pastored enough little country churches, and you, you know, there'll be always be two or three deacons outside the, the church smoking. Never have had that problem here, thankfully. I never understood why, why people would want to walk through what smelled like hell to go in to hear about heaven. Uh, just, you know, don't smoke on the church property. Do it somewhere else, but don't do it there. But my dad smoked. Cigarette smoking was nasty. Occasionally, he would get out a cigar. That only elevated the level of nastiness. Uh, I didn't mind pipes smell so much, but Dad did all three at one time. And then one day, my dad quit cold turkey. Now, I have seen people try to quit cold turkey, and they go back, but no, my dad never smoked again. And he did all one day. And I was talking to him about it. This was before he had his, his stroke. And, he, and I asked him, I said, how did you do that? And he said, well, I realized that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and he probably didn't want to live in a place that smelled like that. That was his whole answer. It just it suddenly dawned on him that his body was the temple of God, and he, he did actually quote that verse, that his body was the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelled in him, and he suddenly realized that God didn't want that in his house. And he stopped. But none of this happens unless we're intentional. My, I want to encourage you. Make the Word of God more intentional in your life. And don't just read it. Find one verse to chew on every day. Even if it's just to contemplate it for five minutes. Or even if it's to meditate on it for long years. I mean, there was this passage I remember in 1 Timothy. It's that passage you probably have heard before about why a wife is not to usurp authority over the man It's talking about her not teaching in church. I never really understood that passage. And I I heard hundreds of different opinions on on that subject. And then one day I memorized the entire book of 1 Timothy and I would quote it over and over and over again. And I, you know, when I preached through 1 Timothy, I preached from memory. Uh, But when when I got to that chapter... And, and I had memorized those verses suddenly because I had memorized the whole chapter and I had the context of everything. The meaning of that passage jumped out at me and it was kind of like, oh, I finally understand this. I finally get this. And any time I spend chewing and meditating God's Word, it has a way of changing my perception of Scripture because I understand what the author meant. And by the way, if you can memorize or meditate on large passages, it makes those little smaller sections much more plain to you. So try to memorize chapter. I know that seems 
unwieldy to do. You can start with some chapters that have one or two verses. There's one chapter in Psalm only has two verses. You can start there. You can memorize those two verses. Then go tell all your friends, I memorized an entire chapter of Scripture today. They'll be very impressed with you. Don't tell them it was only two verses. But be intentional about making the Word of God part of your life. Brother Steve's going to come and lead us in, in a song. And I, I just want you, wherever you are, if you want to come up here, uh, this is an appropriate song, More Love to Thee. I can't imagine a better way of expressing your love to Jesus than to listen to him, right? Uh, guys, if you don't know this yet, what your, your lady in your life really wants is for you to listen to her. They love that. Uh, they love that. We just want them to bring us the remote control and, an, uh, and a new drink with lots of ice in it. But they want to be listened to, so make sure that you, you do that. Uh, I can't imagine a better way for us to tell Jesus we love him than to, to make a fresh commitment to meditate on his word. Would you stand as Brother Steve leads us in song? And if you want to talk to me, I'm turning my mic off and you can come up and I'll, I'll be happy to pray with you. Or you can come up and pray to yourself and just make a fresh commitment to, to God that you will be intentional about his word and not just hear it and forget.